Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that we gather here today on the ancestral lands of the Spokane people and that our watershed incorporates the ancestral lands of the Coeur d'Alene tribe as well. These indigenous cultures have lived and continue to live, work, and play along the banks of our watersheds for millennium and were the very first water keepers. All right, so we are so excited to have Kara Odegaard and Guy Gregory on the podcast with us today. Why don't we kick off this conversation with you, Guy, and uh, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Um, my name's Guy Gregory. I'm a geologist. Uh, I've worked in uh, water issues, both uh, contaminated site cleanup and water supply issues in the Spokane area for the last 33 years, uh, last three of which on my own. Prior to that, I was with the Washington State Department of Ecology. I live in the county and really like it here. This is my home. I grew up here. It's my home. That's what I'm about. And quite a fly fisher as well. I understand. Well, I am a fly angler and, you know, do the typical <laughs> inland northwest recreational activities for old guys. <laughs> all over. <laughs> Have you lived in Spokane all your life? Uh, no, but I was born and raised here. And like most geologists, you get moved around quite a bit. But I ended up back here. Awesome. Well, Guy, it's so nice to meet you, um, and I know that you and Jerry have known each other for a while, but mm -hmm. this is my first time meeting you, and it's a pleasure. Oh, nice meeting you. And uh, we also have Kara Odegaard on today with us, and Kara, I wonder if you would um, answer the same question. What, sure. uh, what do you do, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Great. Thanks, Carrie. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me today. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Kara Odegaard, and I'm currently working as manager of sustainability initiatives for Spokane City Council. And uh, Guy, there is a term for people like you and I. We're called boomerangers. Those of us who uh, grew up in Spokane and lived other places but have decided to come back and make Spokane our home. So uh, that's where I'm at. And most of what I do day to day is uh, work with local stakeholders and citizens in the community here and uh, better understand what Spokane people would like to see in terms of sustainability and uh, climate action for our city. And that does include water conservation. That's great. Do you find yourself recreating on the river much? Yes. Um, well, so I'll say as part of my uh, reflection and moving back to Spokane, I do find that um, it was very uh, odd for me, growing up, I never really spent any time on the river. But when I came back to Spokane, and as I've been more and more involved with conservation and sustainability, I've met the river for the first time. That's what I like to, um, how I like to describe it. And um, I do, uh, was just out there on Saturday. Saturday was my birthday. And I went out and did river cleanup for the first time. So, happy birthday. Yeah, thanks. Saturday was kind of rainy. Yeah, my husband <laughs> was not happy that that's what I chose to, how I chose to celebrate it. But it was, it was fun. That's great. Well, it's your day. You can do whatever you want. That's right. 
Yeah, it was a little hard to complain with that rain coming down right. after the summer we've had. But uh, I was out there too, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, what a what a what a great day. Yeah, I was out on the, on the upriver side with the forum group, and boy, oh boy, it rained rained hard. But that's all right. Felt good. Yeah, that's right. You were you were up at the in the valley. That's yeah. right. Great. Well, guy, maybe. Um, you know, you can tell us, we can start out by having you tell us a little bit about uh, this beautiful thing we have under us called the Spokane Valley Rathdrum Prairie Aquifer. And, you know, we're really interested today in uh, understanding more about how that aquifer is connected to the Spokane River and why the aquifer is really so important to the life of the river. So, Sure. Um, in 2004, I was fortunate enough to be appointed the Washington State Manager for the what everybody knows is the, the bi-state study, where we and the University of Idaho and the United States Geologic, or excuse me, we in the state of Idaho and the United States Geologic Survey partnered to study and understand for uh, the first time, really in a in a, a large scale way, how the aquifer and the surface waters of our of our region work, and it it was a great experience. Met a lot of great scientists and stuff, and we came up with a really nice report that has really stood the test of time. It was published in two thousand and seven, and there's not really been a lot come along after to 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 improve upon it. Uh, what, our, what we found basically was the Spokane Valley Rathdrum Prairie Aquifer is this pile of, of glacial debris deposited in a valley uh, right after, as, as a result of the Missoula floods. Everybody around here has heard the Missoula floods. Well, this is the main escape channel for the Missoula floods. Oh, wow. And this pile of, of, of glacial debris extends from, oh, roughly, well, actually, Bayview at the tail end of Ponderay Lake over to uh, Spirit Lake and then down to Coeur d'Alene where that valley turns west and heads across the straight state line. It goes through Spokane Valley. And if you draw a line that sort of connects Gonzaga University and Spokane Community College, the aquifer turns north at that point. It gets kind of geologically complex at that, uh, after that. Some of it splits to the west, and some of it splits up and down. But the water, uh, well, we'll talk about how the water moves in a minute. Anyway, all those lakes discharge water into the aquifer. You'll notice that the outlet streams for all the lakes in the region only go, you know, 100 yards or 200 yards, and they're gone because they seep into the aquifer. It's really coarse and really transmissive. Of the exception to that is Lake Coeur d'Alene, whose outlet is the Spokane River. So, Guy, help us visualize that for a minute. When you say glacial debris, you mean rocks and cobbles? Yeah, big yeah. boulders. For gotcha. those of you that have, have looked down at the Sullivan Road area off the bridge when you're stuck in traffic there, you look over there and you see boulders six to eight feet in diameter. It's it's The, the grain size stretches the imagination as to what happens with clastic sediments. It's just, it's really cool stuff. Um, and it, it has given our aquifer 
some uh, physical properties that you know just are are extremely unusual. They don't occur very often, and it makes it very prolific and very easy to get water out of for for uh, uses. Anyway, the Spokane River, uh, as it comes out of Lake Coeur d'Alene, it leaks like all the outlet streams, but it's got enough water in it where it doesn't leak a lot. It, it can continue to flow. It doesn't disappear. And so that river uh, from Post Falls Dam to roughly Sullivan Road uh, leaks water into the aquifer. So the aquifer picks up uh, water. And we found it at, at low flow, that's about 600 cubic feet per second is how much, how much flow goes into the aquifer. And we know that by physically measuring it. Once you get uh, below Sullivan Road, the aquifer and the, and the river elevation gets to be about the same. And the, um, the aquifer begins giving water to the river. So the flows increase. And by the time you get downtown from Sullivan Road, the flows are about 600 cubic feet per second more. So that's how much water, you know, what you get back, all you've lost uh, to Sullivan Road by the time you get to downtown. Uh, then you, below, how, go ahead. How do you measure water coming in and out of the aquifer from these rivers? Oh, you take surface water measurements at different points at the same time or, or real close to the same time if you can. And you measure depth and velocity and out of that you get a, a value in cubic we use cubic feet per second but of course we could use cubic meters per second or whatever you'd like but that's how you do it you take those measurements on the same day get a whole crowd of people together and then take those measurements and then afterwards you go to dinner it's really a lot of fun <laughs> right uh so uh anyway then the aquifer continues to gain water Downstream, downstream from downtown, it gets about 300 cubic feet per second between downtown and Seven Mile Bridge. Uh, and uh, the, as, as that aquifer extends north from that line between SCC and Gonzaga, it splits in half. There's an upper and a lower aquifer. The upper aquifer discharges to the Little Spokane River there at the springs at Wandermere, Dartford, and uh, the famous springs at Waikiki. And then the, the lower part of that aquifer discharges to Lake Spokane, just below the confluence of the Spokane River and a little Spokane. So at that point, the aquifer ends. All the water that was in the aquifer is back in the river. So I like to tell people that above Sullivan Road, every drop of water you see is trying to get into the aquifer. Below Sullivan Road, every drop of water you see is trying to stay out of the aquifer and get out of the aquifer because mm -hmm. it's got to be done by the time it gets to uh, the confluence of uh, Little Spokane and Spokane River. Now, the importance of that gaining-losing is, well, first, the aquifer has been designated as the sole source of, of drinking water for our region. And... When you look around, you know, in a year like this, it's pretty darn true. I live on a well. I got about two gallons a minute. You're not going to build the cities and the, the industries we built here on that kind of flow. We've got abundant water here. It's been great. The second part of it 
is that every drop we take out of that aquifer for our use would otherwise be going into the river. And it's not getting there. It's pulled out for our use. So we see that reflected in late season flows in particular uh, as we grow. And uh, in prior to the 1940s, the river got as low as 1,200 cubic feet per second for seven days, all, you know, once in a while. These days, the river never gets above 1,200 CFS in the summertime, in the late summer. So we're taking a lot of the flow of the river and diverting it for other uses. That, that seems remarkable to me because I know growing up, you know, here, you know, we always heard that conventional wisdom. The aquifer is kind of endless. It'll go on forever. We can, you know, water our lawns or do whatever we want with this water. And there's virtually no wasting it. And I think, it, you know, it seems like that's before this, this moment where we began to understand that regardless of the volume of water in the aquifer, the, the river depends on that aquifer for, for life and flow. That's it's, it's absolutely true. The, uh, Stan Miller, my colleague, for many years used to say he'd get a call every year from a, an eighth grade earth science teacher and ask him, mm-hmm. is the aquifer still infinite? And the answer that he always gave them was no. Uh, we had a, in 2007, we had a community-wide scientific presentation talked about that, uh, but folks, um, uh, you know, while it's, while it's not infinite, it's still plenty big, but it does, the use affects the, the ecology and the living things in the river. It does. Yeah, and I'm sure compounded by droughts like we saw this summer, it's pretty bad. Actually, the, <laughs> to be honest, the drought didn't really... Uh, hit us as hard as we, as I anticipated. Oh, wow, really? Uh, yeah, because there's a lot of storage in the aquifer, and that water drains out of storage. Uh, but, you know, we w- probably won't see the real effects of that until a year from now, when that storage is emptied, and now we need to fill it up to get back to where we were. Um, so what can we, uh, we really focus on? Is it just... Um to look at the sustainability of the river, is it just reducing our consumption or are there other ways for? Well, the data indicates that somewhere between seven and 10 times, uh, we, we use roughly between seven and 10 times as much water in the summertime as we do in the winter. That winter water is, is the water you use in your household to, you know, wash clothes and prepare food and manage waste and things. In the summertime, seven to ten times of that is more water, and that's almost all outdoor irrigation. And the total amount of water we use on a per-person basis has been estimated by the U.S. Geologic Survey to be in the 96th percentile of the United States, something like that. It's, it's like 5% of the U.S. uses more water than we do. We use more than 95% of everywhere. And it's, it's, it's uh, we use... And we and our rates are very low, so we don't use very much water. We we use an awful lot of water. You want to edit that? <laughs> Wait, clap your hands. Yeah, we we use an awful lot of water, uh, relative on a national basis, and we do we use that 
region-wide. The numbers in Idaho and the numbers here are, in effect, the same. And so uh, we could easily uh, conserve some water, maintain green grass, and have a better river. Because all every gallon you don't pump in the summertime stays in the river. Mm. We we were watching the hydrograph pretty closely this season and noticed that uh, while at Post Falls uh, the flow gauge showed a pretty steady 500 cubic feet per second with very little variation. When you look at the flow gauge down in that gaining reach uh, below Spokane where all that aquifer water was pouring in, the, the, the flow gauges were bouncing up and down quite a bit. By the way, we did not make our in-stream flow for a fair amount of the season of 850 cubic feet per second. But I had an intern ask a really interesting question, and that was, hey, when do they pump, the, uh, when do they pump up you know, uh, those big water towers and fill those water towers? Um, <laughs> And I don't know if that has any relation to that uh, hydrograph bouncing up and down, but it was an interesting question to think about. Well, they, they fill the water towers as they need to. They all have a level in them, and, yeah. and when the, the water tower gets down a little bit, it fills up. But, um, yeah, the hydrograph this summer, especially if you've re-looked at it recently, is, is, is uh, very unusual, and, and there's some real questions as to what's going on. Um, I think... Kara, do you, you look like you're eager to say something. No, no, I'm just, I'm listening. I always learn something new every time I hear guys speak. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I do, actually do have a question for you guys, if, sure. if I may. Oh, please. Um, I was just listening to the radio, I think just this morning, and the local news was talking about how we saw like 130 times our normal um, snowfall in the mountains this, this winter, this past winter. And so, um, but I do remember also our river flows were low in the spring. So what happened between those snowfalls and the spring when our, um, flows were a little lower than what we normally would see? Well, I, I don't know where the, where the radio station got their information. My information showed us having a pretty average snowpack on the basis of the April 1 data, which is really kind of the end of the year. And that's that's about as good as it as you get as to what the snowpack really is before it starts to melt locally. Anyway, April 1 was right in the, you know, 90 to 110% of normal. Uh, but you'll recall it didn't rain in March, mm. didn't rain in April, didn't rain in May. We, we, we lost a lot of rainfall. Uh, in fact, it, at my place, I don't, I don't think it rained between February and uh, a weekend in, in August, and a very small rainfall. So it's been really, really dry. Now, our, our stream flow in the Spokane is dependent upon, uh, well, it's controlled in the summertime after the uh, the snowpack runoff goes through. It's controlled by Avista in accordance with their federal license, and they uh, have flow requirements that are dependent upon largely on the flow that comes into that river. So that dry, dry spring really made it uh, incumbent upon them to 
decrease their flow out of the lake to maintain a lake level. And uh, so they did that, and it, it they shut the river down pretty much to a 500 CFS discharge from Post Falls sometime in mid-July, which is a couple, maybe three weeks earlier than they've done it before since since the license was renewed in 2009. Yeah, so we saw, yeah, it was a very early, early year in that sense in terms of that water level coming down so low. Yeah, dry spring really, yeah. really kicked us around up here. Right, with record-breaking uh, temperatures in, in June. And, of course, that has the follow-on effect uh, of having everybody out there beginning to crank up the irrigation, right? I mean, guy, yeah. yeah. And I'm I'm looking at the at the hydrograph through the summer now, and I'm eager to see some pumping data because it looks to me like maybe in mid mid June, everybody started watering like it was like it was never going to rain again, and maybe left it on. And we and I'm going to look be looking for a a total aquifer wide pumping. Uh, level that's higher than usual, but relatively constant for the whole summer, which would be very unusual. So, Kara, that you know really kind of brings us out of the science and 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 the uh, <clears throat> hydrology over to the sustainability side of things. You know, and we you know guy just mentioned how much water uh, the citizens in the community in our Spokane area use. And I think, I think the County numbers are something like 235 gallons mm-hmm. per person per day, I believe. And the city data that we've been given is that, um, we pump 202 gallons per person per day within the city limits. And that is, um, still at 95, 96% uh, in the 95 or 96 percentile of what the rest of the country uses. So, Knowing that we live in an arid uh, climate here and that we are already um, at the high level of water use compared to um, our fellow citizens across the country, we feel like we can be doing better here in Spokane. Um, We talked a little bit earlier, uh, Derry, I think you brought it up, that growing up in Spokane, we were always told that we had an infinite supply of water and that water never runs out. But a couple of things are happening. Um, we're seeing population growth, not just in Spokane County, but in Kootenai County, who sh- shares the aquifer with us. Um, we're also seeing some shifts in our climate and precipitation. And what we've um, been experiencing, I think, a little bit with this year, but in years like 2015 and other recent years, we're seeing that we're not having the same snowpacks in the mountain that we are normally what we're used to. And because, um, you know, Guy should probably be saying this, he's the hydrologist, but um, we are, uh, our watershed is snow-based. And as we're shifting more to the rain-based precipitation with warmer um, temperatures, that water is going to flow through the system faster than it would normally as um, snow provides a natural storage, right, throughout the spring and early summer. So, um, yes, <laughs> the conserving water and pumping less into our grass or onto our uh, landscaping in the summer is very important. Uh, 
I learned a couple years ago, I think it's something like in, in the Columbia Basin, there's, there's something like 1% of our landscapes are riparian landscapes, but over 90% of animals from insects to the largest mammals rely on the riparian habitat for food and shelter and water. And so these, this river is extremely important, not only for our human health, right? We interact with it in a recreational manner. We also um, interact with it as we just learned from Guy, it provide, helps pr- provide water or brings water into our system. But it's super important for the, for the non-human beings that live in our region. Uh, and so what we're looking at right now is helping um, educate people. You know, what happens, I've, we've get, gotten this question when we go out to the public and start talking about water conservation. They, they want to know what happens to the water if they're not using it. And so we talk about leaving the water in the system so that it stays in the river and why that's so important. Kara, would you mind backing up a little bit and talking more about who the we is in sure. that conversation? Yes, sorry. Uh, no, that's okay. we, so what part of my job, um, as I mentioned before, I work for Spokane City Council, and um, part of what I do is convene stakeholder groups, and those are sometimes technical experts like Guy, um, and they're sometimes everyday citizens who really care about what the future looks like for our community. Um, Council President Brian Beggs calls it the democratization of policymaking. So we're bringing in people that live in this community and are impacted by by policy decisions to help provide some insights and some recommendations on what we could be doing to change, um, maybe in this case, our behaviors in in terms of how much water we use. Um, And so over the last, I don't know, year and a half maybe, I've been working with um, a group called the Water Resource Collaboration Group, um, of which both Jerry and Guy have participated in. But this is a technical advisory group with um, that have water conservation experts, um, hydrologists, uh, everyday citizens, to help us better understand uh, or provide additional uh, recommendations on how we as a community could um, bring that 202 gallons per person per day down to a, a lot lower number. So what that number is, you know, I don't know, but I think we could do a lot better than being at the 95 percentile of the rest of the country. So you would say um, from the people that you're talking to and the information that you're going over, the two biggest threats to our river right now would probably be human consumption and, and climate change. Are we missing anything else? Well, I think that there are, um, when I when I talk about pop- the population it's growing. So we see mm-hmm. in Spokane County that our population has grown. Um, that just means more people are moving here. And so if we continue to consume water at that same per capita rate, um, we can't sustain our river flows and c- expect to keep consuming at such a high rate. The other impact there, um, I think that it is important to note there is a cost to these to this the more infrastructure that the city has to put in in terms of supplying water to people but also pr- 
being prepared for fire suppression and having, you know, water in those water towers to be able to um, fight fires. Um, if we can start bringing that uh, number down, so that per person per day water consumption number down, then we might be able to avoid um, costly infrastructure. So that's another aspect to look at. Not to mention, if you're keeping water in the river, you are enhancing the benefits, which are also economic assets at right. some level, right? If you've got recreation. Absolutely. That kind of thing. Um, yeah. I want to be clear about something, Kara. You know, you are uh, working with the city council inside the sphere of the city of Spokane, which has a retail service area that you know, supplies water. And then I think Spokane also wholesales water to other purveyors in the basin. But we still have Spokane County. We still have Rathdrum Prairie building out uh, infrastructure. What Maybe you could tell us a little bit about why you think it's so important that the city of Spokane, who, you know, uh, uh, really goes after this consumption issue, um when when we have these other folks, uh, you know, in the basin who are also having an effect, why is it important for Spokane to, to take the initiative here? Well, I think that we need to lead by example, right? I think we need to, if we're going to ask other people in the region to also conserve water, we need to be willing to do it ourselves. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest reason from my perspective. That's Let's also acknowledge that City of Spokane, to a certain extent, is playing catch-up here. Uh, the Spokane Aquifer Joint Board has uh, published uh, water-saving guidance for uh, outdoor landscaping that, that is designed to uh, minimize outdoor use. and They represent uh, other um, jurisdictions in Washington. City of Spokane, uh, City of Post Falls has had a a conservation every other day watering ordinance for many years. Uh, City of Coeur d'Alene is is on board with that, and most of the water districts in North Idaho have been promoting conservation that I'm aware since 2005. So you know we've we've got City of Spokane's been on the bus. Spokane County's um, promoted water saving appliances and things at various times, but you know. Folks are doing it, but it's kind of in the background, and it's and it's good to see the city taking uh, a little more uh, well advertised approach. We have a a really great um, program that's been in the development for the last couple of years. Uh, the Spokane um, City of Spokane's Water Department has a WaterWise program, which includes uh, rebates and other incentives for. Um, updating your uh, indoor fixtures, but also uh, rebates for replacing turf with uh, native or low water plants. And so that's really kicked off um, in the last couple of years and has been very popular. As um, Guy mentioned earlier, this big increase in pumping in the summer really is attributed to what we, what we put on our landscaping. And what we're finding uh, from irrigation experts is that 
we're overwatering our grass. It's not that you can't have grass. Uh, it's that you are probably overwatering it anyway. And up to some estimates say up to 50%. So that's one area where we can really look at um, and doing better. The other thing with the uh, Spokanescape uh, and rebate, which I did in our, we did it at our house uh, last summer. And um, personally, I found it to be really rewarding because we, what we did is we put in um, native plants and what we've seen, what we saw this summer were, I couldn't count how many different kinds of bees that we saw coming into these, onto these plants. And it was just really cool to see uh, the little ecosystem in my own yard changed so dramatically. Mm-hmm. And so I think once people learn uh, what their impact of their, of their grass is, they're really open to learning other options. Uh, we live on a corner. And so when we were putting in this new landscaping, we've struck up dozens of conversations with our, um, our neighbors and everybody was super supportive and thought that it was pretty cool. So I think people just need to understand better um, exactly what Guy was saying with the interaction between the water aquifer and the river. I think a lot of people who've lived here all their lives still don't quite understand that. Um, and so with, the, what, with our water conservation work that we're doing and the sustainability work that we're doing with the city, part of that is getting out into the community and having these conversations and explaining these relationships. Um, and when people learn, I think they can make better d- decisions. I think language is really interesting here. You know, we, we get out there and we, we, we attempt to, you know, we promote water conservation. But at some level in Spokane and the surrounding areas, it, it may not even be about conservation as much as just using your water sm- smartly or wisely, right? Exactly. I mean, uh, the degree of overuse that's happening out there is, is kind of stunning. So um, I'm, I'm just fascinated by that little uh, piece of language. In- yeah, it's, it's always been amazing to me. You're talking to a group and you say, we'd really like you to cut back your water use 25% and everybody's eyes get really big and, oh, my God, you know, we're going to have to do all these horrible things. And what I'm asking them to do is change the timing on their water when they change it, their outdoor sprinkler, whether it's a kitchen timer or their programmable other timer instead of watering a zone 20 minutes change it to 15 congratulations you've just saved 25 percent of the water you were going to use and your grass isn't going to care you know your grass just flat won't know so you know and and now you're a hero you've saved 25 percent of your water use and people when they when you put it in that kind of context to them it it tends to speak to them a little more makes more sense there's uh, also something that um, if people are willing to go an extra step, there's a device that's a leak detection device that we installed at our house. Um, the one we installed was a flume device. And, and what we found um, was that we had a leak in our irrigation system, but because it was underground and also underneath some really old trees that were loving the extra water, we didn't see any of the evidence of the leak, but having that um, detection, that device was really helpful for us because it tells you in real time when you have those leaks. Um, I think it was $100, so it wasn't a huge investment on our part, but it's saved us a lot. 
in the last, I don't know, we've had it for about 18 months. But that's another simple way that people can really learn. And I think what we don't understand, because, um, you know, we are really fortunate to live in a place where our water is pretty affordable compared to other cities. Um, we often don't understand um, just based off of our water bill when we are leaking water or overusing it. So I'd also um, suggest that your listeners maybe just start measuring your water use every month. Just see where you're at um, and just see if, you're, if your household is higher or lower than that 200 or 202 um, gallons per person a day per day. Um, and if you're higher, maybe, maybe there's some things that you can do that are pretty easy. Like I said, I, uh, I love how this conversation has really shifted into, um, what listeners might be able to do to help. Um, but a couple of questions come to mind. And one is, is the primary consumption onus on citizen consumers or the other um, factors at play there? And then if it is on citizen consumers, what can they do maybe politically other than cut their water consumption if they're already doing that to help the city um, tackle water consumption overall? Um, so does that make sense? Oh, yeah, that, that is a hard question to answer, and I'm not a politician, so I I'm not sure uh, that I you know I could weigh in on that. But I do think that um, there is a debate, right? Where do we draw the line between um, incentives versus mandates? And um, what we saw this summer and we learned very early on in the spring that we knew we were going to have a drought situation. And so part of the um, work we're doing with city council is really looking at what would effective drought response measures look like for the city. Um, and how do we start informing the public, you know, what these drought measures are, but also why we would be, um, implementing them if if we were the what we can do is is we can take care of our own business first okay you know and, and we've done this before with the chemical threat from stormwater right we've, we've folks have taken care of their own business and and made sure they manage their chemicals properly rather than dumping them down a storm drain and pretty soon the boy scouts are out painting dump no waste drains to stream or something. And people are much more attuned to what they put down a storm drain now than they were when I was cleaning parts in my garage in 1970, I can tell you that. Now, <laughs> you know, but it all starts with taking care of your own business. And, you know, just watch your water use. And then all of a sudden, the guys that use a bunch of water are going to stand out. So, and they'll start thinking about how they use water too. I think that I think that's the best way to get. Uh, it, it's it's a long, it's a long trip, but it's worth it. And and ultimately, if we got if we can do that and get the culture to change here, then then the threats to the aquifer and the river, like climate change, get pretty small because really we're the agent here that 
is the danger to the river. We can pump it dry today. We don't, we don't need climate change to do that. So, um, you know, we got to change our culture a little bit. And the way to do that, I think, is slow and steady wins the race. Yeah, we've learned um, from other municipalities who've been doing water conservation a little longer, maybe. Um, and one great example is what they've done in Flagstaff, Arizona. And they have a similar climate. They're an intermountain. Um, they get their water from mountain and uh, snowpack. They have reduced their water use per capita over um, 50% over, I think, a 30-year time period. And like, oh, wow. and yeah, so it can be done, but it is a generation's worth of work um, in part because we have um, these uh, we have these expectations of and um, what we think we know has been embedded into our brains for you know mm. for the last hundred years, right? What we think we know about our aquifer and the water availability, but it is going to take time to educate people and to build awareness. Um, and what I am really hopeful for, what brings me um, a lot of hope is how active I see youth in our community around issues surrounding um, climate and, and the environment, and in particular, um, conservation efforts. So I know these kids are a lot smarter than we were when we were in school, and they already understand the implications from an environmental perspective. So I think that we are definitely on the right track. Let me push a little bit on the first part of Carrie's question, which was, you know, we've really focused a lot on that variable of culture change and education and personal use of water, using that water smartly and or conserving at times when it's needed. Um, but what about, are, are there any big water users that maybe are industrial or, you know, uh, other entities that uh, could also be reforming so that they're not impacting uh, the aquifer and the river? Yeah, because what I was thinking about is I personally live in an apartment that I rent. I don't have a lawn. I don't um, own my space. I don't have the ability to make some of the same adjustments to get more energy conscious or water conscious devices included into my space. So is there anything that the city is doing to like target uh, rental uh, mm -hmm. companies or other um, companies that use water from our aquifer um, and maybe don't have the same incentives or are, are there incentives yeah. for those companies I too? I think region-wide, uh, yeah. region-wide we're moving towards a lot of uh, multifamily housing. And if you live in a newer one, then you're already using the uh, best – fixtures and things that are up to date on, on water saving appliances. If you live in an old apartment, which have mm. has a great deal of charm, but sometimes that 50 year old toilet you like so much, you know, it uses what 20 gallons of flush or something, you know, you might, when, when your, when your landlord comes in and does a remodel, he's going to, he or she will put a new uh, low flow appliance in and, you know, they work pretty good. The, um, so, so that's what you can do from your household. The other thing is, since a lot of people in multifamily dwellings, uh, to get outdoors in this region, use parks and golf courses and things like that. And I think we need to 
um, region-wide to make sure that our irrigation systems at these green spaces are modernized, brought into the, brought into the 19th century anyway, so that they can um, uh, more sanely take care of their irrigation practices. You know, we've all seen the sprinklers running at the baseball field when it's raining. You know, we, we can, there's technology now to stop that, and we, but it takes some money and some time to get that integrated. And that's, that's I think, a very important thing to do. Yeah, I think that um, one of the, our champ, I think one of our success stories or, or uh, one of the departments at the city that's working really hard for this is the um, city's parks department. They've already upgraded systems and they're saving um, millions of gallons annually with their upgrades. But it is it's a massive project and it does take a lot of money. Um, this I I believe that the city is considering using um, some of the ARPA funding or the American Rescue Plan Act funding to help with conservation. Now, um, we are not 100 percent sure what's allowable by the federal guidelines right now, but we're looking into continuing to use some of that. Um, but the parks department's been a great champion, both in upgrading their irrigation, but also they're doing some experimental gardens around the city in Manitou Park, for example, they've put some low water landscaping in, um, to areas that are, you know, already difficult to mow with a traditional, um, mower. So they're putting in some more native plants. Um, and I think that's, that serves two purposes. One, we're conserving water in those places, but we're also demonstrating to people what alternatives to turf might look like in their own home. So we're doing that. Um, and the city's water-wise, um, so the city adopted a water conservation master plan uh, in 2019, last year, what, two years ago? No, 2020, sorry. Yep. Yep. 2020, <laughs> um, April. So we, we we adopted that, and part of the, the big um, foundation foundational strategies there were to target the high water users, both in the residential and the commercial space. And so, I do know that the city's doing that, um, and and including this summer, where they've hired a consultant to help with commercial properties to do. They're offering free audits, so these. Um, and I'm told not to use the word audit because it sounds like a tax uh, problem. <laughs> to do these um, assessments, well, they'll, they'll come out and look at your heating and cooling systems to see where your equipment might be, you know, not functioning properly, for example, and um, help you manage those better. And if you have any outdoor landscape um, to help you with that, too. And it's actually saving companies money from their water bill. Um, and. I'll have to say, uh, my my colleague Kristen Zimmer always likes me to tell people that the city offers a hundred dollars off if you upgrade your toilet um, to a new low flush toilet. And I've never had a job where I mentioned toilets so often as I do right now. So, oh, that's um, great! I love Kristen. I have to bring that one in. Um, I want to kind of wrap up this discussion, Jerry. Do you have any thoughts on? some of the things we've talked about today and, and do you have any general updates for our listeners about Riverkeeper's work? Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, the one thing I wanted to mention is that there are uh, 
proposals that have been developed by the Water Resources Collaboration Work Group. And uh, one of those has a drought response plan uh, that's got a novel aspect to it, which is a drought response plan that's triggered by river flows. And uh, maybe if I could just, you know, just concisely, uh, one of you could address that you know, particular piece of why, why the river makes a good um, kind of assessment tool for, for where we need to be with regards to responding to drought. And then, yeah. <laughs> well, in, in 2000 and, oh, goodness, 15, I think it was, maybe 14, the Washington State Department of Ecology uh, adopted an in-stream flow rule for the Spokane River. And they set a summertime low flow for 850 CFS. And that was based upon uh, optimizing the uh, habitat for both, uh, for all native species in the river, which are mountain whitefish and uh, rainbow trout, red band rainbow trout. And the, the, the two species have sort of separate flow desires, but they cross at 850 CFS, so that's where they're both optimum. Um, that, in the minds of the agency at the time, and I believe today, represent a health, those flows represent a healthy river for not only those in-stream fish, but the riparian uh, organisms as well. And I think uh, when we go below that, they're there's uh, impacts to both the riparian vegetation and fauna and flora and, and the fish. So we need that, that 850 is important and we can drop below that like we did this year. I think concisely using the river as a guide helps remind us why we're conserving water and why it's important. That's good. Well, thank you both. Uh, what a great conversation. It's obviously going to be a long-term conversation with, uh, and I would, I would absolutely, you know, if you happen to listen to this in, uh, you know, in the fall of, uh, <laughs> of, of 2021, stay tuned for some, some, uh, some actions that might put forward, uh, a political response. Um, so stay tuned. Uh, also in terms of Riverkeeper, you know, things that are going on out in the community, uh, we have our Spoken River event on November 5th. Uh, it's going to be a really interesting, uh, virtual, uh, program that will really dive into salmon recovery, which obviously salmon recovery hinges on having great uh, flows and lots of cold water from that aquifer coming in. So um, we'll be talking a little bit about how we can support the efforts of the Upper Columbia United Tribes, the Spokane Tribe and the Coeur d'Alene Tribe in their uh, visions and their efforts and actions to recover Chinook salmon in the, in the Spokane River um, and other Upper Columbia water uh, watersheds. But um, yeah, so I think in terms of that, I'd, I'd hand it off, Carrie. Yeah, I don't know if you have final words. Yeah, well, I guess my um, two final things would be, one, are there resources for listeners who want to learn more about some of the things that you've talked about today? Where should they go to find out more? 
Well, there's um, there's all kinds of information on the on the web. Uh, Jerry's Riverkeeper website has tons and tons of information. Uh, I'm on the board of the Spokane River Forum. We have a lot of information and disseminate both historic and and uh, news newsy information on what's happening day to day. There are any number of conservation or fish or uh, recreational organizations from the Canoe Club to Trout Unlimited to, oh, geez, there's all these folks. And, and you as an individual can get involved and learn and be part of the game It's and part of the solution. So I encourage you guys to find an organization you can support and support it and get out there. Yeah, and I would just recommend that folks visit the city's website and um, you can search in the city's search um WaterWise, which I will bring up a lot of really great resources. That's website's really well done. The other thing they can do is go to the city's um, SpokaneCity.org and look up um, the Sustainability Action Subcommittee. And once you go to that page, um, we're trying to keep that updated as regularly as possible. But you can see what the city's doing in terms of our full sustainability efforts and sign up for our newsletter on that website. Awesome. Thank you I, so much. I want to advertise for Spokane Aquifer Joint Board, City of Coeur d'Alene, City of Post Falls. They all have similar things to what Kara's talking about. So whatever jurisdiction you live in, somebody's got somebody's got something you can learn from. Awesome. Great. Thank you both. And then we have one question that we really like to ask all of our guests who come on to our podcast. And uh, that is, if you could say one thing to the Spokane River, what would it be? I've been thinking about this question, and this is a this is a tough one. What do you ask an entity that is uh, ancient like the river? Um, and I think what I would say, other than thank you, is um, to tell me a story. I would like to hear your story. I know um, that you know centuries, uh, thousands of years ago, even that the landscape that we are living on now looked a lot different. And I would like to know more about what that was like. Um, so, yeah, that's my answer. Uh, I would like to tell it thanks for putting up with us for over a <laughs> century of neglect and and abuse. Uh, and I'd like to know uh, if it would give me back my golf balls. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. Um, Thank you both so much for being on today. Uh, it's been a pleasure and uh, look forward to more discussions. So folks, uh, hit us up, spokaneriverkeeper.org, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, look forward to it. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. want to thank you today for listening to the podcast we certainly had fun and we want to make sure that you like subscribe and share at will 
If you want more information, you can go to our website at thespokaneriverkeeper.org and find out more about the great work we're doing in the community to protect our river. Sign up for our email list for sure. We hope listening to this today inspired you to go out, fall in love with, and find the voice of your local river. Yeah, like Jerry said, thank you for listening. And we want to give a big shout out to our supporters, our local Spokane community, and of course, our Spokane River. Thanks, guys.